0: There may be a cat occasionally making a sound, hopefully, (laughs) that will add to the atmosphere.
1: (laughs) Hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a consultant living in Ukraine and London, working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects.
2: And I'm Megan, a librarian turned freelance book indexer and proofreader also working on a novel while raising two boys with my husband and making PB&Js by the Dozen.
1: In today's episode, we talk to Jane Friedman, an expert in the publishing industry who has written with much insight, candor, and calmness about the business of writing and publishing. In her spare time, Jane also writes creative nonfiction, making her sort of a day job writer as well. Jane describes herself as sitting at the intersection of several communities, which she says gives her a 360-degree view of the changes now shaping writing and publishing. She sees herself as serving as a bridge between these communities. Jane has 20 years of experience in the publishing industry with expertise in business strategy for authors and publishers. She's the co-founder of The Hot Sheet, the essential industry newsletter for authors, Her newest book is The Business of Being a Writer, Publishers Weekly, so that it was destined to become a staple reference book for writers and those interested in publishing careers. She's also a professor with The Great Courses and a columnist with Publishers Weekly. She was so knowledgeable about the publishing industry and about writing, and we love talking to her, and we think you'll enjoy this interview.
2: We are really excited to have you here. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with us about this issue.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: So you work kind of on both sides of the publishing industry. You say that a lot of the business side sees you as more literary and the literary side sees you as more business and you serve as the bridge between the two. So if you could just give us a quick overview and our listeners of what exactly you do do um, regarding the business of publishing, that would be great.
0: Well, as of today, I work primarily as a consultant to authors publications and others who have some sort of publishing project in mind. So there are a lot of outsiders to the publishing industry that end up at my door and they're trying to figure out how to navigate getting a book out or doing some sort of project that will usually earn them money, but there are also passion projects out there. And I also do an email newsletter that's specifically for authors on what's happening in the publishing industry. What I found is that after many years of going to conferences, giving talks about trends, people would come up to me after and say that was great, but how can I stay up to date? Like this stuff is changing all the time, I'm confused. Um, There are a lot of opinions out there, I don't know who's right. And so that led to this newsletter, I do the hot sheet where every two weeks, it's a roundup of several issues that have made the news and that likely have long-term ramifications for writers, especially on earnings or on how your business operates. So it's part of the motivation is actually to reduce people's anxiety. I think we're all fortunate in that publishing is a pretty slow moving industry, despite all of the digital change. And so a lot of the things that people get upset about are not actually worth the time and energy of being upset about.
1: Mm. Yeah. Can you give us an example of something that is, you know, not worth the time that people get upset about that? (laughs) Well, every
0: time like Amazon looks in a particular direction, like everyone has a panic attack. (laughs) So there's a (laughs) lot of concern over what Amazon is doing now, what it might do in the future, how they change their terms. If, you know, right now, one of the big issues for authors has to do with how they pay through their Kindle Unlimited subscription service. Um, another issue is their advertising arm, which is starting to ramp up. So there's, you know, just continued, ana- like obsession, I would say, about what Amazon is doing. Now, some of that, of course, is merited, but I think it's it's also just become one of those kind of hot button issues, and also kind of a litmus test for where you fall on the spectrum of the publishing industry, whether or not you think Amazon is inherently evil or if, you know, they're actually making some good changes to how the ecosystem works.
1: I mean, it, it makes sense, I guess, that people do get so obsessed or whatever, because especially, you know, self-publishing or something like that, it's so dominant.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to be a self-published author and, and not care <laughs> about <laughs> what Amazon is doing if they're, you know, 50 to 80 percent of your sales.
1: No, I think that's really interesting. If you could maybe explain how you got into this position of being the bridge, because I think it is really unique, just having read the stuff on your website and on your blog and also looked into your book a little bit. You have a unique position and you say things really clearly and with a lot of kind of knowledge and background and also calmness, which is, I think, really (laughs) useful. So how did you end up in that position? What, I guess, skill sets are you drawing on?
0: As an undergrad student, I majored in creative writing, and so I was very much on the, I would say, like like the track that every early writer is on, where you're very, you're you're the book lover, um, or the bookworm, the person that people see curled up reading most of the time. That's like the stereotype. If if you stopped seeing me after college, that's probably what you think I would be doing today. When I started getting into publications work, which was still when I was in college with the newspaper and the literary journal, and then moved into a commercial publishing job right after college, I started to gain a lot more experience with what the business end looked like. And I was fortunate in that I joined a company. This was a, a company based in the Midwest. I called it the Midwestern publishing empire because it was very unusual to have a publisher of this size in Cincinnati. It was a family-owned business up until uh, 2000, and I joined it in 1998. In any event, it was a unique company in that it really had its heart in the right place because it was family-run or family-owned for so long, and that it really wanted to serve these particular communities. Um, It's an enthusiast publisher, and it was serving fine artists and graphic designers and woodworkers and and writers and all these different interest areas but the company was also very astute on the business end and had very smart people running it from a business perspective and you were always challenged on the projects that you wanted to pursue. You had to show that there was evidence of need in the market. They were not going to just spend their money on anything. They had to see that it was a wise investment. So it was a very fascinating balance between art and business that has carried me through to this day of understanding that they're not necessarily at odds with one another. Of course, they can be, but often the friction is very useful in producing a better book or you know or or helping you actually feed yourself to have that discipline to look at what is this project good for me at this point in time or do I need to balance it with something else that will help pay the bills
2: yeah well and i think that's definitely an issue that we've been seeing a lot more in the last couple of years is there is a ton of interest in the business of creative work and it just seems to be more more of a conversation all the time, at least in the circles that we follow. And along with that, there's just been a lot of interest in transparency and publishing and business practices and pay for writers. And um, this has always been an issue, but it's definitely getting a lot more play. So what is your, what is your kind of big picture take on the rise of this discussion?
0: Part of it. I believe has to do with the rise of the so-called gig economy Mm -hmm. and how there are more people basically making a freelance living, either whether that's by choice or because they have to, because the the jobs that were once there have gone away. This would particularly affect writers who are on, you know, the newspaper or magazine side. And then I think there's, there's both like a dark side to this and also a positive side, um, obviously the dark side is more affiliated with the layoffs and the lack of advertising and the and the growth of tech in a way that has cut off avenues of earnings for some people. But there's also a very positive side in that you don't have to have conventional employment any longer to make a great living. But it does require that discipline I mentioned earlier of of knowing how to set the foundation for the business and then how to grow it in a way that where you don't burn out, or you don't get bitter, <laughs> you don't <laughs> attract the wrong sorts of clients or business. So it's, I think every writer has to, you know, every and every career is different. So every writer has to go through this kind of organic process of figuring it out for themselves, mm. uh, because there's no two careers that are going to be alike. So the digital environment and tech, I think is really part and parcel of what we're seeing and that there's so many ways now to directly reach readers or to directly reach out to the people who would pay you for your writing. And that was much harder, you know, going back before the internet where if you wanted to get paid for your writing, you really had to reach out to a publisher of some kind. Maybe there were some exceptions to that, but um, today it's, I, in my opinion, it's much easier, m- much easier to get readers to pay for your stuff than to get a publisher to pay.
1: Hmm. I think that's a really interesting point because I think the number one, and one of the things that's like a myth that we're looking into this season, one of our kind of key questions is around like, is it better or worse now? You know, because there's this myth of like this golden age of publishing that always is before, you know, this sort of nostalgia for people who used to make a living in New York City writing short stories or something like that. And so I think it's really interesting this point that you're making, about the fact that it's easier to get readers to pay than publishers to pay No, um, Could you talk a little bit more about that or like what you've seen, what patterns you've seen?
0: Well, when I started in the business, this again was in the late 90s, you know, the dream was either kind of the freelance dream where you would be writing for the big glossies and or it wouldn't even have, you, that's not normally where you would start, but that that's where you would kind of aspire to. But you could even make a good living writing for like business to business publications. So there was that kind of dream of having a freelance writing life, or the dream was getting selected by one of the big five publishers, the, you know, that editor sitting in their office in New York City, drinking fine sherry or bourbon or whatever, and editing their <laughs> manuscripts. And, uh, and it, it, it's true that during this, I don't, you know, during this, um, I don't know, between the 70s and the 90s there was all of this consolidation in book publishing in particular and the rise of the chain the bookstore Barnes and Noble and so there you do see kind of this this increasing level of book sales and more demand. And I caught the very, very tail end of that. I saw the tail end. And so, yeah, I think to some extent, maybe it was easier to make a living as a writer if you were producing work for that very commercial type of market. But of course, not all writers produce for, <laughs> for that commercial market. For If you're a literary author, I think it's always been pretty difficult. There's always been a small audience for more literary or work, more challenging work. And I don't feel like that part has changed at all. So Mm. if you're writing poems and short stories and so on, I think that's long been supported by the creative writing professor sorts of positions. And where I know people are feeling the pinch on the literary end is that those positions, like there's so many more people getting trained as mfas or more literary academic writers but there are not the professor positions to support all of the graduates so then you also have that dynamic but i today i think the opportunity is that if you're willing to be more flexible in how you think about where your work lands or how you reach readers there are really an unlimited number of methods of monetizing your writing Um, i monetize parts of my writing through an email newsletter that people have to pay for. I'm getting paid to send you an email. Um, and most people think like if I just presented that in the abstract, people will pay you to send them email. You'd think it was crazy. But if you're producing something that of course they're highly interested in or you uh, your name has meaning, of course they're going to pay. And we have the the rise of Patreon, which is you know where people basically do an NPR or PBS style pledge to your stuff, pay this monthly fee, and people can pay as little as a dollar a month. And so it makes it very accessible for people to become patrons of the art or the creators that they love. And that's really just taking us right back to the origins of writing and publishing, because the early writers thought it was crass to be paid by a publisher. Writing was divinely inspired and you did not accept money for something that God had given you. And thus you either were able to write because you were unbelievably wealthy and didn't need the money or you had patrons. So we're kind of back to the beginning.
1: <laughs> I, th- I think that's really interesting, but it was a different kind of patron. Like you would have like one or two, not like, I don't know, 500 or something, right? <laughs> I will say
0: that authors would, um, when they would have a new edition of their book come out, they would change the patron page, like the dedication page. They like change the names on it so that they could extract more money from more people. <laughs> so there was, there was lots of funny stuff
1: going on like that. But in any case, yes, go on. No, well, I like that. Actually, they did what they could. They just didn't have Instagram. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, I just think, I think it's interesting, but like without getting into details of like how you, you know, make money personally or something, but I mean, from what you've seen or I guess from writers that you know, I mean, one of the things that we're really interested in breaking down is, I mean, so I guess the thesis that we're sort of looking at, it's not even a thesis, it's like a research question for the season. We both have day jobs. We're not really planning to quit them, but it's sort of thinking about like the whole thing about day job and writing is usually about Money. It might be about something else. I mean, like I get personal satisfaction from my day job. So does Megan. But I think almost everybody we've interviewed on the show, it's like if you could quit your day day job, would you? And so we're sort of thinking through like what might be the steps that you uh, should think about when you're planning doing that or something like that? Because I think by nature, if you have a, a pretty full on day job and you're writing on the side, you're probably like a person who's cautious to take the big leap. Right. And so it's sort of thinking about like how do you see and maybe you'll just tell me that this depends on every writer or something. Um, but how do you see that sort of breakdown? Like what do you see like a real potential for any of these sort of content related money generating options, I guess?
0: Well, when I was still conventionally employed, it was always in the back of my head, what What do I need to do to to break free of this? Because eventually the job became too corporate and it wasn't satisfying anymore, And I knew I had to make an exit. And one of the first things I did, was establish my own website. I bought my own domain, janefriedman.com in 2005, knowing that I would want to make use of it at some point, although I didn't actually put a website on it until 2010. So it wow. sat there for five years with, you, you would see nothing if you visited that domain. And so when I began really putting something on it, it, was, it was mainly to try and capture some value out of what I was doing for my employer which this gets into some really kind of gray ethical territory that I've seen discussed. Like when you were conventionally employed, how, how much can you moonlight or do stuff on the side without it somehow stealing something from mm-hmm. your employer? And this is where answers are going to differ radically. Mm-hmm. But in any event, I wanted to capture some of the value I was producing in my day job and make sure that if and when I left it, I would be able to have some of that audience that was following mm-hmm. me. So I was in a pretty unique position. Like my day job was pretty closely tied to what I wanted to be freelancing about writing and publishing. Um, not everyone's going to be in that position. So in any event, I had the benefit of just a nice slow development period. So I didn't go full-time freelance until 2014. Uh, so I had like four years to develop a foundation, which involved being active, on social media, writing at my site, blogging, being a guest at other websites, doing interviews or podcasts like this. And so by the time I was really pushed into a full-time freelance position before I wanted to be, I I was fine. It wasn't a big deal. And I'm not Mm. trying to at all say that it won't be a big deal for the majority of people, but I had already done the legwork. You know, I had already I didn't have to climb the steep learning curve of putting up a site and understanding when it meant to be active online, because I was learning for years prior to having to see it pay off for me. And I'm always so grateful that I didn't, you know, put it off, procrastinate or think, well, what what would I put on a website? That's the question that so many people with a day job who who might go freelance are thinking, well, I don't know what I'd put on a site. I don't know what I'd blog about. I'd, I'm not comfortable doing it. Like there's so many excuses mm-hmm. that will come up, some very valid, but you have to get over it and just start practicing and getting getting the pieces in place.
1: I think that's really good advice. And I think it's something that if you would it sounds silly and almost and I think that's part of why. Like, just from personal experience, I spent, I'm not kidding, several weeks this summer just trying to figure out, like, which – I have two Facebook accounts. Which Facebook account is going to tie to my writing persona, right? Um, Or whatever. And so I think it takes a lot of time. So is that one of the pieces of advice that you would give is, like, start to figure all of this stuff out?
0: Yeah. you It takes, like – I think that that's the perfect example of like figuring out which Facebook account, figuring out the persona, figuring out what you want to say, how you want to portray yourself. These things take time and you don't get it right immediately. Yeah. <laughs> so you need some time to like mess up rather than being like under the gun, oh, I've got to earn X amount right now because I no longer have a job. So having a job gives you the cushion to think about these things and have a more relaxed development period.
1: I think what is hard is that, say you have a job, this is me, obviously, I'm just talking about my own feelings, but uh, you have a job, and you think that all your extra time should be spent on doing the writing, and it's really hard to... Like, think of yourself as a writer because you also have your day job, right? And so you're sort of in a cycle. And it's like almost when I was going through the summer between thinking about my Facebook account, I was like, this is stupid. I felt like it was a really stupid question. Like, which Facebook account should I use? I'm like, surely I should be writing my novel. (laughs) But it's I think all of them go together. And it's just hard, I think, to think about how you prioritize everything. Right.
0: Yes. Yes.
2: Well one of I guess one of the positive things about starting before you need to is you have the room to make the mistakes when you don't have an audience and nobody's paying any attention <laughs> yes. it kind of, it kind of <laughs> takes some of the pressure off
0: it does um, it does
2: you're pretty optimistic it sounds like about the state of being able to make money as A writer. You're definitely not the only one, but there are a lot of people who believe that, you know, unless you have a huge trust fund or Mm. you have a day job or you don't care about the money or you have a partner who can support you, you they don't go so far as to say you might as well not start, but (laughs) that's that's (laughs) definitely implied. They say, you know, you're going to have to work. You are going to have to work harder. Um, That's just part of it, but you're going to have to work so hard that it might not even be worth it. Mm. What do you think is missing in that in that analysis? Like, where is that coming from? And what what is it that makes you a lot more
0: optimistic? I think there are probably two pieces to that. One piece is the mythology of the writer that we all share. And I don't talk about this mythology as a good thing or a bad thing. It's just kind of a fact. It's It's the world that we swim in, the values that we've been taught by our writing teachers or by society. And a lot of that mythology that writers have inherited is that it's actually a good thing to be a starving artist. Like there is value in that. Uh, there's value in the struggle that great art doesn't produce money and that to market and promote and to try and earn a living is somehow beneath you. Um, it And it, that just goes back hundreds and hundreds of years back to how I mentioned, you know, writers thought it was crass to accept money for their writing because it was divinely inspired. There's still some of that floating around um, that the, 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 the valor in the struggle and then the starving artist persona.
2: Well, and like culturally, there's this whole thing about, you know, it's rude to talk about money. Well, but the yes. people who enforce that the most are the ones with the most money, so. Yes,
0: yes, so there's also the taboo surrounding all of this discussion and writers who talk about how it's impolite to ask, they, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but writers hate it when they're asked at a an event how many books did you sell or how much mm. did you get paid? And they're like, I don't think would you go around asking other people what their salary is? And I'm like, well, actually, I think we should. I yeah. think we should <laughs> right. be having that conversation <laughs> because it having this veil across it all is not helping anybody. Mm. So, if we could have more transparent conversations about what we're earning and how, we'd all be much healthier for it and we'd start to knock down some of this mythology that we've got so there's some status anxiety surrounding the issue of money in the US I think it can be particularly tortured because we tend to equate how much money you earn with your with your worth so we we've got to kind of let like go with some of these things in order to make progress if we want to earn earn our living as a writer and for some mm-hmm. people it's not important so the here's the other piece of it so the mythology is one piece that you can get trapped in. And then the other piece is just what sort of expectations and personal limitations that you've got working around you. You know, some people are born into a lot of money and privilege and they just don't have to worry or think about what their writing is going to earn. Or on the flip side, they, they have, they know from the very outset that if this is a career path they're going to pursue, it has to pay. And then you make your, you make different choices based on, of course, the, the net that's on the playing field. When I was growing up, it was in rural Indiana. I didn't really have any writing and publishing role models to speak of. <laughs> and uh, I had no resources. My family couldn't afford to send me to college, so I went on scholarships and loans. And so when I was looking for internships and jobs uh, while I was still in college, I had to only look at what would pay me. There's a lot of talk right now about Internships and other opportunities that don't pay. And I think it's a fascinating debate. But f- for me as an individual, uh, you know, going back into the 90s, I just automatically filtered out anything that wasn't financially sustainable. Hmm. So I think some people are just, you have certain choices you can or can't make. And that also tends to inform where you end up on this issue. If you haven't, it, since my expectation was that yes it's going to earn a living because I have no other choice I think that actually does lead to a particular type of outcome
1: yeah and I think a lot of these you know the debate a lot is about basically access right for different groups of people so there's always been certain people who could access any of these opportunities and the as Megan and we discussed this veil is beneficial for people who are sort of at the top you know or who are getting who have access to different rewards than other people do but I think it's really it's interesting in the corporate space as well because it's also I mean, it's the same in all different any other sphere that you look at, right? Um, In the corporate world, it's sort of looking at gender gap or other types of gaps because of diversity, and it's exactly the same. You know, you have access to different opportunities, but even if you have the same opportunity, you get paid less because there's this veil, like it's rude to talk about money. And so, but one of the things, this is not entirely related, but I, I always am thinking about, you know, this also the balance of like snobbery versus trade publication or genre publication, because that has often been more commercial from the beginning, right? Um, and it's something that I didn't think about that much because I definitely am guilty of originally having more snobbery like towards the literary scene. But I think it's really interesting that it's like we've all been duped because you go into that and you you won't make money. Right. And so I think it's really interesting. There's this like opposite commercial to sort of perceived success ratio.
0: Yes. Yes. The the tension between literary and commercial or genre and literary is has always been a fascinating one since I began in the industry. And each side feels like the other has something that it wants, but doesn't want to admit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. So you know the genre writers are always wanting the prestige they feel like they don't have. and the literary writers are always feeling like, you know they want the money that they mm-hmm. don't have because prestige doesn't pay the bills. So there's always there's always it's always a different set of questions that arises from each group or a different set of, self-imposed limitations that arise and I yeah I find it fascinating
2: yeah well so we talk a lot about and by we I just mean kind of collectively as well as the three of us right now talk a lot about how we do need to be more transparent and open up the conversations but what can what specifically can we do to do that like how do we do this
0: yeah so there there are some people in the writing and publishing community who have basically made a pledge to be transparent about how they make their how they make their money. I'm one of them in in for my first year of freelancing, I posted at my website a breakdown of where the money came from with dollar figures. And that's something I need to update actually, because it's now several years out of date, and the mix of earnings has changed. So just putting it out there publicly, I think does a lot. When I initially put up that first year of earnings, I got a lot of feedback from people who said, I wish I had seen this sort of thing years ago, because the percentage that I earned from writing, at least at that time, was less than 10%. Mm. A big portion of it came from online teaching, because that was really what served as the bridge from my old conventional life to the new freelance life. And so I leaned on that for my first year. It's not so much a piece of the pie now because I've been able to develop more of the writing income, but that, I mean, people need to hear and see that message and see it from someone who they, they believe is quote successful or who has managed to make it in some way that they're, you know, they're shooting for there are self-publishing authors, the self-publishing community, one of their traits is transparency and, and sharing as much information as possible about the business side. So you'll find authors like Joanna Penn who will put a breakdown of what our sales are like, where if the money, the split of money between fiction and nonfiction, the different formats, the different retailers, how much comes from advertising. So all of that is hugely beneficial. Mm -hmm. And then I find that bloggers too are more likely to post that sort of information. There was an author recently, I can share the link with with you. It was within the last month. She put in her newsletter, a breakdown of her earnings for her books. And this is really, it's really hard to find anyone who will publish those figures. Uh, Mm -hmm. Granted it wasn't an email newsletter, so that offers her some privacy. Um, but you know, your publisher and your agent generally don't want you disclosing that. But as far as I know, she hasn't had any blowback because I, I certainly shared it near wide and far when I (laughs) spotted it and, um, I I didn't see it get taken down. (laughs) So, but seeing the, you know, basically the royalty statement or learning about advances and sharing that information just helps get people's expectations in line. And also it give, when you add in the context of this is someone's third book, or it's their first or is their 10th, yeah. that it helps you see that it takes time in many cases to grow a career. There's nothing that usually happens overnight.
1: Yeah, in any career, right? Is it usually in a contract that you can't share? Like, is there a non-disclosure on, on sort of the financial aspects? Or is it just like not the done thing?
0: It's rare to have a non-disclosure in a publishing contract. Um, it, it can happen. But usually if you have an agent, they're going to be like, don't, don't share it um, just because it's not done. But there's mm-hmm. nothing to stop most people from doing it. It's just that taboo that we're, we're all afraid of what will happen. Some people consider it competitive information or proprietary competitive information that if mm. this information were revealed, it would somehow hurt your business. But I generally don't buy into that way of thinking. I mean, writers yeah. are too different from one another, I think, for that to be a real issue. We're not talking yes. about like Coca-Cola here. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit, it's it's art on, you know, on some level, even if you're writing genre um, and readers normally don't find authors so interchangeable.
2: Yeah, right. it's not a commodity. <laughs> right, right. Well, so one of the things that we talked about in a recent episode was the income surveys that various publishing industry groups put together, um, often, you know, nonprofit or advocacy groups. And your piece about how to interpret those surveys and kind of not necessarily what's wrong with them, but what can be misleading or what can be misinterpreted about them was really helpful and something that we relied on. But I guess so that is one way, though, to improve some of the transparency around Mm. around income. But what I found really interesting about those is the way a writer was defined, and we had a really difficult time pinning down just exactly how you would define a writer. Um, yeah. and we looked at government statistics and we looked at those surveys. and you know it was anything from someone who just says they're a writer to you must you know get 50% of your income from, right. quote writing. So how, how would you define a working writer, not even necessarily a full-time writer?
0: A working writer is someone who's actively trying to get something published um, or is writing with the intention of publication. So you may be working on a manuscript for years and not publish anything. I would consider that a working writer. For the purposes of these surveys, I don't know that that's who they should be asking about income. I feel like most of us, when we're When we're looking to these surveys we want to know okay what happens after your work is made public after you start you know i guess the counter for me starts starts ticking once your work is on the market and it can be purchased so until that time comes i don't know that it's useful for these surveys to be asking um and i it's hard to tell sometimes who it is who's the pool that they're really querying because it includes people with day jobs it includes professors and it even includes people in other kind of writing fields that we don't normally think about in terms of the working writer. Like it, it could include uh, screenwriters for instance. Um, I mean, for the purposes of our conversation where we're pretty focused on book and magazine work and not Hollywood. So yeah, I think I would consider working writer, anyone writing for publication, but not in terms of these surveys, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that makes sense. If there was a way, I'm curious about if you could like design your own source of information for this or, you know, you were the master and you could order any type of survey or any type of research. What do you think what do you think are the open questions at the moment?
0: I would love for one of these societies to look at people who've been active Let's let's limit it to books because I think it's important for most people to understand the earnings potential from certain mediums. So writers who are actively publishing books what's their earnings been like over a period of time it doesn't have to be necessarily book specific income we're just we're interested in all of the income that they might have like from speaking or teaching but Mm -hmm. they're actively publishing books and that's kind of what i would consider the foundation of their platform Mm
1: -hmm.
0: so what brings them attention and visibility what Gets them the speaking opportunities or teaching opportunities is the fact that they're actively publishing books. So, what's their earnings over since they started until the present day? And how has that increased or decreased? And what's the percentage that's coming from books versus other avenues? I think that would be wonderful to learn Mm -hmm. because it would give us a better sense of if authors are depending more on not book sales for their income, if they're really leaning on other sources, if it's becoming a more diverse mix, or if there are still authors out there who, depending on the genre, can reasonably expect to support themselves on book sales alone. My thinking is that at least three quarters of authors could not support themselves on book sales alone, that they have to supplement with other areas, but we, we don't really know. And these surveys aren't telling us that.
2: So talking about the different other sources of income that rise up around, for instance, book publication or other writing, speaking engagements, teaching, that sort of thing. In your work, what do you tend to see? How do you tend to see that breakdown? Not necessarily in numbers, but what what sorts of day jobs do you see most often? How often are people publishing adjacent? Um, My I'm freelance book indexer. So, and I was a library, worked as a librarian. I'm not working as that right now, but, um, you know, so my, my work is book industry adjacent, but it has absolutely Mm -hmm. nothing to do with the writing that I do. Yeah. But so how do you, how do you see, how do you see that kind of breaking down?
0: I would say by far the number one activity has to do with teaching whether that's on a university level or something more informal a lot of writers are making up any gaps through the teaching of other writers then after that i would say you get into more service based income so the editing of work coaching other things that aren't necessarily teaching but interacting one on one with mm-hmm. writers for pay and beyond that it's it could it could be practically anything i think they're probably just as many baristas and people doing all sorts of service jobs to fill in the gaps. I find that it's so personality driven. You know, there are some writers who it's just not possible for them to carry on doing their writing work if the other job that they have pulls on a very similar skill set like editing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, They really need to have something that's totally disconnected. They need something that is, you know, basically digging the ditch or (laughs) Mm -hmm. that that part of their brain is turned off. So I, f- I feel like every writer in this respect is different. So it's hard, you know, it's hard to say, oh, you should shoot for this job or another. It's m- merely what's sustainable and helps you get that other work done.
1: Building on that and and not. <laughs> You know, So I'm thinking about people from a perspective of having a day job and you're sort of saying that by far most of the money that people make from writing is actually not for money. It's from doing all these other things. But I think as well doing all those other things drives the audience for your writing as well. And so I just wonder, I guess, two things. Number one, is it is this like potentially a negative thing for somebody with a pretty intense day job because they're thinking like not only do I have to write this book but also I have to figure out some way to do all those other things that are also basically other jobs a. And then B, relatedly, are there particular things that you see kind of being consistently higher value in that category of sort of publicizing or, you know, being writing adjacent that helps to drive audiences, for example?
0: Oh, So what would be a higher value day job because it would benefit the um the higher
1: value si- writing side hustle, because it's like writing or coaching or doing all these things. I think it also builds your persona as a writer, where if you're in an unrelated day job, you don't get to build that persona. And so it's going to take you longer, etc.
0: Right, right. Yes. So I've now forgotten the first part of the question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the first part, sorry, is a little convoluted. I wonder if I could say it better. No, I'm thinking. Okay, I'll make it more personal. Why not? I'm thinking. Okay, I have this intense day job. I'm writing my book, and how? And now, actually, hey, I'm never going to be able to replace my income from writing because that's obvious, basically. Because most even writers don't make their income from writing, right? They make their income from like other things that are related to writing, um, and so. A, is that a correct interpretation? And B, uh, if so, then are there like, what are some of that writing related hustle that is higher value for building your audience and, and building your persona? Yeah. Uh,
0: I th- I th- I'll tackle the easier part first, which is the higher value activities almost always tend to be affiliated with teaching positions that where you are, in some respects, being put up on a pedestal as you know, as a goal, you represent a goal or some form of success that other writers want to achieve. And being a teacher at any kind of institution also helps, of course, sell your own work and, and make you prominent in ways that as you, as you say, build your audience over time. So I do think it makes sense that teaching is like the number one activity for for editing and coaching and some of those other service-based activities, it just depends, I think, on how you market and promote yourself in that way. I've seen it work as an audience building uh, avenue, but I find that many writers would stop doing that tomorrow if they could make it up with book sales, mm-hmm. because it can be very draining work and you have to be really... I, I'm someone who believes that writers are writers and editors are editors. <laughs> mm, yeah. uh, not, it's, it's not that writers can't be good editors, but I find that normally you, f- you are really devoted to one or the other. So I've, if you do consider writing your core calling or activity or practice, I do think you'll normally drop editing mm-hmm. right away if you could. So as far as other high-value activities marketing and publicity. I see some writers like become specialists in certain areas uh, like digital marketing or writing, marketing copy, basically becoming copywriters in one form Mm -hmm. or another, whether that's for digital outlets or for other forms. And I think that's a really great skill to develop because it helps you when you go to market and promote your own work. You know, there's so many obvious applications and it takes some of the the mystery and the intimidation out of the equation when you're consistently doing it for other people and you see the patterns of success and you understand sometimes the flukes mm-hmm. <laughs> that occur in what <laughs> succeeds or what gets attention so it's just a very it's i think it's healthy to get the business side of it kind of on a level where you're not thinking oh that's either beneath me or um i can't possibly do that because i'm not good at it mm-hmm. so it, it just takes away all of that weird anxiety layer stuff that gets built on it over the years for, and I'm speaking mainly of literary writers here. So those are probably the highest value, but I don't, I don't know that other day jobs it's necessarily, if it's a high intensity day job, what, what do you do when it's competing so strongly with your writing? You know, that's, that's a hard, that's a hard dilemma. It feels like, you know, it's, it's something that has to be reevaluated whether how sustainable it is, you know, on an annual basis, if it, yeah, it's, it feels very personal.
1: Yeah, I'm, that's very true. <laughs> that you just said, I <laughs> have a really intense day job.
0: I was just going to say, when I was working in publishing, which there's so many people who are writers who think it would be great to have the day job in publishing, but I found it increased my guilt for not spending time on my own work because for me it was a job that it really just depleted me creatively yet I still felt like I had to produce something to call myself a writer and finally there was a very kind woman at a conference who asked me what I was writing and I hated that question Mm. actually I still I still kind of hate that question but when i worked in publishing i especially hated it because it just made me feel worthless no i'm not writing anything and this woman she realized she knew exactly what was going through my head when she asked it she realized she shouldn't have and Mm -hmm. she was very kind and took my hand she was a quaker i think that helped (laughs) (laughs) And and she said well well you're just exhausted of course you're not writing anything and from that moment on i was like i am not guilt tripping myself for not mm. getting the writing done. Like, it's just, I'm not at a, I'm not as at a stage in my life where it's possible, and I'm not going to have that unrealistic expectation. That makes a lot of sense, just
2: having been in different, different stages of life where, you know, just depending on what's going on, you do and you don't have time, and you just have to decide, like, one, it doesn't have to all be done right now. Um, yeah. And two, you know, what does have to be done right now, and then look at maybe how you can make space later to do the other things. So... What what do you say then, like what kind of steps or process do you just generally kind of recommend that people do when they are, they're facing these choices?
0: If you have a day job that is pretty much okay, like it's not causing you to wake up in the middle of the night in a sweat. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not, um, it's not one of these jobs where you have to feel like you're checking your phone every hour to see if your boss is asking you for something. If it's not one of those jobs and it just feels like, yes, I could continue this indefinitely and it would be okay. Uh, and all the better if you're getting some satisfaction out of it. I feel like the key then is to just set up your writing practice in a way that is consistent and disciplined in how it works around the day job. So even I kind of like a lot of my work has nothing to do with my creative writing. Mm. My creative writing definitely takes a backseat to the other forms of writing and work that I do for the publishing industry. Mm. So Saturday is kind of my day. That's the day that's for creative writing or whatever project I have. That's not industry focused. And that time becomes sacred. And lots of writers talk about how you have that moment on the calendar that you set aside and and you don't negotiate it. So I feel like figuring out that ritual or that whatever it is for you is really important to giving it that space in your schedule that's recurring. But for people who are in that more intensive position where you're still you haven't figured out how this is gonna work, I found that there's some success in deciding. I'm going to take two weeks of the year. I'm going to take four weeks of the year, assuming your job allows for that. And that's going to be my writing life. Like I'm just going to take that month off and focus on getting writing done. I've seen that succeed for people, but again, your job has to allow for it or you're, you have to figure out when that retreat's going to happen in a way that's not, (laughs) that's not destructive to other things that might be going on related to your family or your health. So yeah, it's, It's hard. It's hard to figure out if you have a lot of um, a lot of demands on your time.
1: Yeah, for sure. And in terms of tips, I think it's useful to get your tips because you've got so much experience of working on this. You also, so those were really helpful, like ways of thinking about it. And I guess returning to your other tip around the higher value thing on marketing, maybe besides reading your website and your book, The Business of Writing, uh, Business of Being a Writer, sorry, besides those things, do you have any other tips for how you might go up the knowledge curve on marketing and develop those skills?
0: Yeah, there there are two ways to go about it. One way is to pick the couple people that you trust who seem to speak in the same language as you, who have the same M.O. It doesn't have to be me. It could be be any number of people. But it's important to find the person offering marketing or business advice that has the same outlook because there are lots of different styles and personalities as I'm sure you've both noticed, in how to approach mm. these mm-hmm. challenges, and some people are much more, um, much more marketing oriented, let's say, than I am, where they're going to be following very particular best practices that would apply to any business. I tend to take a much softer approach that's more holistic and a little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more woo woo, I suppose, <laughs> and that I think you have anyway. like woo woo, <laughs> the more zen approach, let's say, where. It has to feel like it's aligning somehow with your values or it's you're just not going to continue doing it. And there are other marketers who are like, that's BS and you're just going to get through it. (laughs) (laughs) So in any event, my original point, you have to figure out who are the people that speak your language and follow them and either read their books or follow what they're recommending and then tune out the rest of it. Because there's, you don't want to have to be sorting through the conflicting advice and the different approaches. Uh, with marketing and promotion, the there are s- definitely some foundational things you'll want to learn, like what's a marketing funnel. You know, what's a call to action? When people are engaging with social media, how do you build trust? Uh, how do you build relationships effectively? For a business, there's some of those things that once you learn the foundational aspects, you're great and you really don't have to revisit that. But there are all of these new technologies and ways that the environment changes. And so you have to find the person you trust who can keep you up to date on that sort of niggling weird stuff, like how Amazon changes its algorithm or how search engine optimization might change in a way that boosts your writing online, stuff like that, or how Facebook draws down reach on business pages things of that nature
2: hmm. yeah so just really quickly before we let you go because I know we're running to the end of our time but you talked a little bit about how you how you fit your creative writing in around your day job work but because that is the real purpose of our podcast which is a <laughs> podcast about writing and day jobs could you talk a little bit more um, I know your recent most recent book is the business of being a writer but you have several other writing. You know, publishing industry books out there, as well as some creative nonfiction. So how do you, what does what does balance look like to you? Or is that a real thing at all? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, it's not a real thing. And I think uh, there are just trade-offs, compromises, different periods of time where you're like, okay, I'm not, I can't do that this year or this month or whatever. And I'm probably a bad person to look at, <laughs> for balance. Uh, for, I consider myself pretty early in my freelance life. So this started, as I mentioned, in 2014. And I'm still making pretty significant changes every six months to how I operate the business. Mm. So during that time, my creative nonfiction production has really kind of bottomed out. I still, I, I did last year as, as a way to not get derailed for too long. I started my own writing group, a in-person writing group here in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I live, so that I would be held accountable and have some deadlines that I would have to meet. And while it and I I was encouraged to do that by countless people. And I thought in theory, that's it's really terrific advice because you do want to have some peers whose Ideally, the people in your writing group are peers who people you trust. You want those people, you know, looking at your work and pushing you and challenging you. But I found that it it has basically not worked. Uh (laughs) It has not produced any results. And it's just because I'm, you know, I'm not, that's not where my headspace is right now. It's more on some other big projects I'm trying to perfect. And they're important to me. Like It's not like the the email newsletter that I do called The Hot Sheet. Like That is just as satisfying to me as producing the creative nonfiction. So there's going to be a a time for that. It's just not right now. Um, Mm -hmm. So I've just, again, very similar to that Quaker story I told you. You have to admit that this isn't the period for that. And when it's time, I'll know it.
2: Yeah, right. I think that's a really good really good point some things just aren't priorities right now because something else is and that's yeah that's okay it's taking more of a long
1: view of a career yeah yeah and it's not a priority if everything is equal right so it kind of does you know so I think it makes (laughs) sense (laughs) I, I like I often think about if you look at each thing individually it's like is this important is this important yes yes but that's not how you define priorities no I think that's good advice I think we could end there. I know it's we could probably talk to you. I mean, I could ask you thousands more questions, but I will instead rely on all the answers you're sending out every couple of weeks and stuff like that. And we really enjoyed and appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. It was really useful.
0: Oh well, I love talking about writing and money and I'm so glad this podcast exists to talk about the day job because it, you know, even though it's coming up more in conversations today, I don't think it it's still not where I would like to see it. So I'm so glad you're out there and bringing some attention to it
1: oh thank
2: you thank you and that's it for this week you can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on instagram at marginallypodcast our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com and if you haven't already please subscribe to our newsletter
1: the sign up form is on our website and if you enjoy the show please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend this will help us to grow our community Thanks for listening and happy writing.
2: Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is "It's Time" by Scotty Caddikaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Why don't you? Hold on. Let me start over.